Section 8 Part 2 Chapter 3 of An Essay on the Art of Ingeniously Tormenting by Jane Collier This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Before I begin my instructions on this head, it is necessary to say something concerning the article of friendship itself, of which, I think, there are to be found several sorts. An ingenious French writer has indeed divided them into many more, but as they all, except one, come under my second or third head, I shall not in this place follow his division. The first sort is that real, true, and reciprocal friendship which is said to subsist between Pylades and Orestes, Castor and Pollux, and between several others, that are to be found in certain books, and perhaps nowhere else. The second is that sort of intercourse where good fellowship, good wine, and a certain sympathetical idleness draw people together, and, in such a society, till they quarrel about some trifle or other, they generally choose to call one another by the name of friend. The third sort is where one person has a real capacity for the exercise of such friendship, as was shown from Jonathan to David, and who, from a desire of energising this his favourite affection, has attached himself to an artful, cunning man. It is in this third class alone that my rules can be properly exercised. To all those, therefore, who, by the specious bait of pretended goodness and benevolence, have been so lucky as to have drawn on upon their hook one of these gudgeons, I shall address the instructions in this chapter. In the first place, be careful not to mistake your man. The marks by which you may know your proper dupes are as follow. An honest, open countenance is a very good sign, for there is much more in physiognomy than people generally seem to allow. If he talks in company, greatly in praise of benevolence, good nature, generosity, charity, and so on, hold yourself in some doubt of him. But if his praises of the above virtues seldom flow from his mouth, except to commend some living person, who has done a humane or generous action, you may make a farther trial of him. However, don't thoroughly trust him, for all his fine talking, till you can catch him doing such actions himself as far as is within his power, doing them also without ostentation. Then mark him down as your own, and you may make good sport with him if you rightly understand the game. There is one mistake which people have often run into in their choice of a dupe, namely, in thinking, that the principal qualification to be insisted on is his having a soft place in his head, whereas the chief thing to seek after is the man who has a soft place in his heart. Many a disappointment has arose from fixing your choice on a fool, for frequently you will find such want of affection, such a thorough selfishness, so much cunning and obstinacy annexed to folly that all your labour will be thrown away. The interested use that is to be made of your friends I shall not here enlarge upon, as there are so many good examples already published, to which I could refer my reader for his practice on that head, particularly the behaviour of Jonathan Wilde, towards his friend, Mr. Hartfree, Life of Jonathan Wilde. Besides, in this practice, you can give but one heavy blow, nor is there much scope for continual teasing and tormenting, as it is the nature of these generous dupes, while you are ruining them, to be pleased and delighted with their power of serving you. When you have, indeed, entirely ruined them, and openly laugh at them for their silly credulity, they will, on discovery of your baseness, feel, at first, a sudden shock, with a sort of rent in their affectionate hearts, 
for being forced to change friendly love and confidence into distrust and abhorrence. But this, in a gentle mind, will soon subside into resignation and even compassion to you for the wretched state of wickedness you are in, and it will never be more in your power to deceive or vex them. The common practice of deserting their friends in distress, men who choose such a proceeding, are already too well versed in to need my instructions. It is not your obvious or trite practices, but your more refined strokes, that I would wish to point out. There is also another objection to the absolutely deserting your friends in distress of circumstances, which is as follows. The only pleasure you can propose, you know, from such desertion, is that your friend may be starved or reduced to a very abject state. Now, in all probability, you will be deceived in your hope, for, when people's nearest and best friends desert them, it is very common for them to find assistance from strangers, where they least expected it. Nay, there are some strange people, so bent upon defeating the purposes of ungenerous friends or relations, that they will, underhand, without desiring any acknowledgments, without so much as putting it in the power of the obliged to make them any return, send handsome presents to those who want. Nor will they give you any clue to guess from whence such bounty comes, unless you happen to know their disposition to be so noble and generous, that you cannot be at a loss to know where your real and grateful thanks are due. Besides, another strong reason against the absolute desertion of your friends is that it might make you ill-spoken of amongst those who have no notion of any pleasure higher than that of relieving their friends' distress. I would rather, therefore, advise a method which would answer the purpose of tormenting much better, and would, at the same time, gain you the reputation of generosity amongst all those who inquire not beyond the outward appearance of any one's actions. If your friend should come to any worldly misfortune, be sure, in the first place, not to fail telling him, and that repeatedly, that it was entirely by his own fault. Then add as many aggravating speeches as you can heap together. Be very lavish to him of your advice to do impossibilities. See Mr. Orgill to David Simple, Vol. Last Book, V.I. Chapter 4. But stir not a step for his relief, except he should be nearly so connected to you in blood, that your reputation, as before observed, will suffer by such a total neglect. In that case, you may either take him into your house, if he will come thither, and let him, according to the old saying, live the life of a toad under a harrow, or make him some shabby allowance, this exemplified by the author of David Simple in Familiar Letters, Volume 1, Letter 5, Volume 2, Letter 21. Hardly enough to keep him from starving, but sufficient to prevent his seeking for support from any other means, without risking your displeasure, or not resting satisfied with what you thought a sufficient subsistence. As I have the highest regard for the reputation of my pupils, I would, if possible, form all instructions upon that plan, and have endeavoured to the utmost to follow the exemplars they are taken from, who are not the openly cruel and hard-hearted, but rather the specious pretenders to goodness, who, under an outcry about benevolence, hide the most malevolent hearts. If your own affluence, and your friend's indigence, should ever put it in your power to practice the above rule, it will be as effectual for tormenting as any in this collection, not from the obvious reason of your friend's being near starving, or his wanting the necessaries of life, for those inconveniences are trifling in comparison with the pain and anguish it is to a generous and affectionate mind to be treated so cruelly and unworthily. To deny a common beggar your bounty, which he asks, 
can only be depriving him of a meal, but to give bountifully to a common beggar, and to deny assistance to your friend, is the highest gratification to a proud and cruel disposition. Let me add also, that, if it has been in your power to act according to either of the foregoing methods, the more cruelly you have used your friend, the more liberal must you be of your slander and abuse upon him, in order to justify your proceedings. To ruin a man by imposing on his generosity and good nature, and then to laugh at him, to insult your distressed friend with reproaches, and to wear away his very soul by insults, under the mask of kindness, may be called the wrecks, the tortures, of friendship. I shall, therefore, quit such deep proceedings, and come to the lighter, finer strokes, more suited to the directions given in all the other connections. As my instructions, also, have been, hitherto, chiefly directed to my female readers, I will pursue the same method, especially as there is, in female friendship, a much more intimate connection, and more frequent opportunities of practising the subtle strokes of teasing than amongst the men. If, therefore, my fair readers will be so good as to adapt the directions for the choice of a friend to their own use, I will beg the men, as far as they can, to adapt to their practice the instructions contained in the remaining part of this chapter. The natural connection on which to found friendship seems to be that of having sprung from the same parents, having sucked the same milk, having had the same education, and being joined in interest as well as blood. Some friendships of this kind have been very exemplary, but yet it is so very common for brothers and sisters to fight and scratch when they are children, to live a life of quarrelling and snarling when they are grown up, to hate and envy each other, with such inveteracy as admits of no disguise, that it is not to such I address my instructions. However, should two sisters choose to play at friendship, whilst one of them considers the other as her property or dupe, to such these my rules may be of some service. When you have fixed on a friend, by the directions already given, endeavour to engage her affections by all the kind and obliging methods you can invent. When you are very certain that you are really become the object of her warmest friendly affection, and that her chief joy and pleasure is placed in your company, and in your satisfaction, try how a change of temper will agree with her. Grow very melancholy and peevish to every one around you, except to this friend, but to her still express great love and fondness. Nay, you may frequently suffer yourself to be talked out of your peevishness and ill-humour by her cheerful endeavours to amuse you. To see this change of temper in you will grieve her to the heart, but still, while she finds it is in her power to relieve your complaints and to raise your dejected spirits, she will herself, sometimes, feel such an overflowing of joy as will repay her for any trouble, fatigue or pain that she may have undergone. Let her go on some time in this situation, for she will, by her own compassion, entangle herself too strongly ever to break loose from your chains, although you should hereafter treat her with the most barefaced disregard, insolence, and inhumanity. Prosperity is indeed the proper time to exert insolence, but adversity is the time to engage the affections of the tender and compassionate, so long as to make your insolence to them, in prosperity, more sharply felt. But it is time now to turn the tables, to be extremely cheerful and good-humoured to all around you, and to be melancholy, peevish, and ill-humoured only with your friend. Make your company so unpleasant that she shall have no enjoyment in it, and then perpetually upbraid her with not choosing to be always with you. 
as it has been already advised to upbraid people with their real misfortunes as being their own fault, so do you, on the other hand, if you come to any mishap through your own folly and obstinacy, not believe your own ears or eyes, if the friend is tender and kind to you. What I mean is this, if she will not take the part of one of my scholars by adding affliction to the afflicted, do you say to her that, for all her frequent visits and kind words, yet you know that, in her heart, she does not pity you, because she thinks your misfortunes are owing to your own misconduct? Then begin to rail most vehemently at the hard-heartedness of the world, the cruelty of all friends, and you must obstinately refuse to be comforted with her utmost endeavours to please and comfort you. Tell your friend all sorts of spiteful stories that you have heard concerning her, by which means you may vent your own spleen, and yet hide the rancour of your intention under the pretence of disbelieving all such calumny, railing, also, at the ill nature of the wicked, censorious world you live in. It has ever been held a part of friendship for friends to tell each other, in a gentle manner, of those faults which it is in their power to rectify. You also, my good people, may tell your friend, not only of every fault, but of every human frailty she happens to have, but, be sure, let it not be in an obliging or tender manner. Let it be the effect of some sudden displeasure against her, and you may take that opportunity, also, of telling her as many shocking truths, exaggerated by unkindness, as you can possibly muster up. Should she remonstrate or complain of your unkind words, you must give her this answer, that, truly, you could not, nor would, flatter anyone. For remember, that flattery is only to be used in order to draw somebody in, on whom you may exercise the utmost brutality, under the name of plain dealing. Never mind whether your friend has really any faults or not, for you may falsely accuse her of as many as ever you please. Be very liberal of your unjust suspicions and false accusations, as they are the daggers which give the deepest wounds from the hand of a friend. Let not a twenty years' experience of the truth and fidelity of your friend prevent your loading her with the most unjust suspicions, and accusing her with thoughts and designs towards you, of which you either do know, or at least ought to know, that she is perfectly incapable. This is most nobly grating to a generous mind, for truly it is said, that those injuries go nearest to us that we neither deserve nor expect. It is very possible to hurt your friend by an extravagant, overstrained commendation of some person or other for some particular good quality which you have lately been pleased to accuse her with the want of. But take care that your accusation was a false one, or else the whole joke will be lost. When you have exhausted all your stock of suspicions, accusations, and so on, against your friend, or have a mind for a little variety in your practice, there is no better sport than to accuse every creature that you know your friend has any regard for, but measure out such abuse in its due proportion, namely, give the greatest share to that person or persons whom you know to be the most esteemed by your friend. When you see your domestics very ready to observe your commands, it is no uncommon way to complain that you can get nothing done, unless you do it yourself. But as servants generally regard not such sayings, and often laugh at your anger and peevishness behind your back, it would be much better to say this to a friend, whom you see very assiduous to do everything in her power to serve you. When a person so thoroughly loves his friend that it is one of his greatest pleasures to serve, to please, or to amuse him, he cannot, it is true, want thanks for everything he does. 
nay, he will be so far from it, that nothing could be more unpleasant to him than to receive such perpetual acknowledgments for his kindness. Yet there is a manner of overlooking such constant endeavours which is not only mortifying, but very grating, and which I would have you, my good pupil, not fail to practice. But if ever it has been in your power to do the least service to your friend, you may puff and blow, you may magnify the trouble you have taken, and you may praise your own friendly disposition and good nature, till you have forced from your friend thanks and acknowledgments enough to repay you for having conferred the greatest favour in the world. Should you also have desired your friend to transact some affair for you, and she, notwithstanding her utmost care and diligence, should fail in her negotiations, do you not fail to blame her for the faults of others, and say that you know it was all owing to some neglect in her, and her want of inclination to serve you? Add also that you would trouble her no more, and here properly will come, in your lamentation, that you can get nothing done for you, unless you do it yourself. We have an old English proverb, I wish it more delicately expressed, which says that proffered service and so on. Keep this proverb constantly in your head, and let your friend daily experience the truth of it, for whatever she does to divert, to please, or to serve you, be sure, in the first place, to be neither diverted nor pleased with it. And, in the next place, make out, if possible, that her voluntary endeavours to serve you were of the highest disservice to you. Nay, you may add, if you think she is in a humour to bear it, that you suppose she did this thing with a design to plague, vex, and distress you. There is a story in David Simple of a man who saved another from drowning, but, in dragging him out of the water, happened to hurt the tip of his ear. The man, whose life was saved, had by the next day forgot the service that had been done him, and made most heavy complaints about the pain he felt in his ear. The example of this man may be of great use, for, if your friends ever do anything to serve you, never rest till you have found out some omission in them, by which you have suffered some trifling inconvenience. Of this, complain most loudly, without ever mentioning one word of the benefit or emolument you may have received. Should your friend, through neglect or inadvertency, have really done something that was disagreeable or inconvenient to you, for which she is heartily vexed, and therefore, confessing herself in fault, should ask your pardon for it, you may answer that you very readily forgive her, for it was not your way to be long angry with your friends. Besides, you may say, that you did not think her half so much to blame as some other folks by whose example and instigation she used you in this cruel manner. This reproachful pardon will certainly draw some answer from your friend, and you may contrive to keep on bickering on this irksome subject till you have put her into a passion. Then, by your own coolness, may you get the better of her, and irritate her on, till you have thrown her so much into the wrong that she shall again be obliged to ask your pardon, which you may delay or grant, just as you find her temper will bear. Keep as strong a command over your own passions, I mean those of anger and resentment, as possible. First, that you yourself may never be thrown off your guard, and next, that you may the better counterfeit those very passions. For, it is as true of anger as it is of love, that none can feign it so well as those who are free from its power. Great sport may sometimes be made out of a passionate person, but it is like playing with edged tools. They chance now and then to fetch the blood, and, you will frequently, as we say, have the worst end of the staff. Therefore, my advice is that you choose for your friend a person 
of mild and patient disposition, one not easily provoked, nor ever giving way to wrath. You may then safely pretend often to throw yourself into violent passions. You may accuse the patient sufferer, with cunning and art, in putting on a calmness, you may say, only to insult you. Nevertheless, you may boldly insult her with some such words as these. I suppose you admire your own wisdom. I suppose you think me a passionate fool, and provoke me in this manner only to expose me. Thus will you turn the tables, and make her endeavour to soothe you. Nay, if she loves a quiet life, she will, if she finds you will not be pacified without it, ask your pardon, instead of your asking her, for having indulged your own fractiousness, and for having abused her for nothing. By this practice, you will also have the world on your side, from that favourite maxim, which it is not our interest to contradict, that passionate people are always the best-natured. There is one precept extremely essential to this art, but of such general use that it is difficult to know under which head to place it, for it equally serves every connection. It has been hinted at in the advice to parents, but pray, let it not be omitted amongst friends. This is, never to give a kind or cheerful reception to the person who has been some time absent. If the person is any way your dependent, sour looks and severe reprimands are proper, but if it is your husband or friend, upbraidings and reproaches for absence will be the most teasing method you can pursue. There is one circumstance which may give you a most delightful opportunity of teasing your friend, and which is generally practised in most families, where there are a number of young female friends. I mean where one young lady has a lover. If you find that all the coquetry you can exert, that all the arts you can use to render yourself agreeable, and by that means to rob your friend of her lover, should fail, and he should still remain her admirer, you must comfort yourself for your disappointment by the following ingenious methods. You must exert the whole power of what is called raillery on your friend, for every least the additional ornament she bestows on her person when she expects her lover. You must noddle and laugh and pretend to be very merry, and tell her how extremely becoming such a ribbon is, and how prettily adapted to her complexion such a coloured gown is. And you may say, It is easy to guess, my dear, by your smirking countenance, who is expected today as few girls have courage enough to own the truth, namely, that they really wish to appear as agreeable as they can in the eyes of their lover, your friend will be greatly teased and vexed by this your raillery. Nay, if she happens to have any degree of bashfulness, she will even omit many points of dress to avoid your jokes. You may also attack her with all your smartness on any little effort she makes in conversation to appear sprightly and agreeable by which means she will be so much afraid of your raillery that she will appear to the greatest disadvantage, where she would most wish to please. When you have thus got her down, you may yourself dress out and talk away, and have one more trial of skill, perhaps, for becoming her rival. If you know of any little failings she has, which she would wish to conceal, at least, till she has rendered herself, by many real good qualities, so much esteemed by her lover, that if he was a good-natured man, he would forgive them be sure to bring them all out before him as soon as possible in hopes of preventing any violent attachment. This has been sometimes practised with success, even among the men, for I once knew a match entirely broke off, and the man was almost distracted for the loss of his mistress, only by his friend saying to him, before the lady, I wish you was hanged, Jack, for you kept me awake all last night by your confounded snoring. 
If your friend should not be quite sure of her lover, but he should be one of those men, who, without any positive declaration of love, had engaged her by many acts of gallantry to live in daily hopes of such a declaration, then you have a fine scope for working, and teasing her to death, seconding in all manner his tricks, either by raising those hopes, or alarming her fear. And you will have the rod of mortification so strongly in your hands on that subject, that you will seldom need any other exercise of your power. Ill health, a weak frame of body, and low spirits, are the unhappy lot of many people, from whence they reasonably claim both favour and indulgence from the good-natured part of mankind. This tempts numbers to affect those ills in order to claim the same indulgence. The proper use to be made of distinguishing the real sick from the counterfeit you will find in my general instructions and so on. If you are blessed with a larger share of health and spirits than your neighbours, be properly insolent thereon, for people may be health-proud as well as purse-proud and you may frequently declare that you do not believe that ill health comes to anyone but through their own self-indulgence. This will do very well amongst all your acquaintance, but will be better towards your friend, if she should be of a weakly constitution. But if she is not, then you had better take the most part yourself of affected weakness, as many emoluments may arise therefrom. There are two ways of plaguing your friends by your requests to them, very different in themselves but both of excellent use, and are as follow. If your friend be of such an obliging, complying temper, as to be unwilling to deny you anything you ask, and perfectly averse, also, to contradicting any proposal that would give you pleasure, you may, in the first place, make all sorts of preposterous requests to her, nor value how many absurd and improper things you make her do, in compliance with your whims. In the next place, you must study her temper, to find out what is agreeable or disagreeable to her, then persecute her daily with proposals to do something or other that is highly unpleasant to her, by which means she must either live an uncomfortable life from never doing anything she likes, or she must be eternally contradicting your proposals and refusing your requests, which may, perhaps, be more irksome to her than any disagreeable thing you can desire her to do. The other method of requests is this. If your friend be so assiduous to serve and please you, that, by making your concerns her own, she, as much as possible, prevents even your very wishes, you may often make such ungracious and disobliging requests, as will be truly grating to a friendly disposition. This is a very refined stroke, and great part of its force lies in the manner of wording your requests, and the tone of your voice in expressing such your desires. There is an honest earnestness, with which people may, sometimes, remind their friends, either of their intentions or promises to serve them, and there is a manner of requesting which carries with it neither insult nor suspicion. But, drawing up your head very high, you must begin your requests thus. Let me beseech you, let me entreat you, pray, do me the favour, I beg you would not forget me so much as to neglect doing so and so. To which, if your friend, a little hurt, should tell you, that it was somewhat unkind in you to ask her in such a manner to do what he was convinced she intended to do without any asking at all. Then may you lie snug, and, sometime after, play her a most noble backstroke, for, when next you want her to serve you in something which is impossible for her to guess at without being told, you must omit asking her to do it, or giving her the least hint of the matter. Now make up some heavy inconvenience that you have sustained, Complain of your great hardship, 
in not having the advantage of the common assistance of friendship where it is most wanted. From that strange oddness in your friend's temper that she would never be asked to do anything without growing angry and putting herself into a violent passion about it. You may say also that, for your part, all you wished was that your friend would tell you how you could oblige her, and you would fly to the Indies to do her any service. Then add as many more warm professions of friendship, as they are called, as you please. This, in all probability, will have a good chance for turning the tables, for making her ask your pardon, and she will, most likely, comply with any terms you shall make, rather than see you uneasy. If this friend, or property of yours, should happen to have any other connections, you must endeavour to embarrass her as much as possible. For, if she tells you that she is to do such a thing to serve one person, such a thing to oblige another, be sure to make some direct opposite request, so that she shall be certain of disobliging either you or somebody else. If it should be in your power to do this friend of yours any service, and she should ever make any requests to you, be very sparing of absolutely denying such requests, for fear of giving her an open cause of complaint against you, but grant all such favours in such a disobliging and ungracious manner as shall destroy all the pleasure of your friend. This method of granting favours in a disgustful manner is one of our chief springs, and must be practised in as many connections as you can possibly introduce it. But in this, generally, granting your friend's request, mistake me not so far as to do her any very essential service, especially such a one as might raise her in rank or fortune above yourself. For to see one's dearest friend get the start of one in anything is too much for such friendship to bear. Therefore, rather lose your friend by a refusal than undergo the above-mentioned horrid mortification. You need not to be at the trouble of racking your invention for spiteful things to say in order to vex all your acquaintance and friends. For, if you will only be sure never to suppress any one thing that comes uppermost, I will engage, if you are a true scholar of mine, the business will be very completely done. The affecting low spirits and dejection, in order to afflict your friend, has been already advised, but the affectation of very high spirits is no unpleasant conceit, when you have worked your friends to oil, or, as Shakespeare says, fooled them to the top of their bent. Although you are to vex, plague, and abuse your friends, as much as ever the power you have over them, by their affections, will bear, yet be sure to seem very jealous of any other persons using them ill. This makes the appearance of great zeal for their service, and, blinded by their love for you, they will almost persuade themselves that it is impossible for you to use them cruelly, when you are so alarmed for fear of their suffering any ill-treatment from another. In like manner, when you have been harassing a servant all day off his legs, you may pity the poor fellow so extremely, and be so very sparing of his labour, that you will not suffer him to go three steps on a necessary errand for your friend, for fear of over-fatiguing him. Should your friend seldom dispute anything with you, never find fault with you, nor ever remonstrate against your unkind, your disobliging, and your disagreeable ways, set this down to the account of your own goodness and perfection, and not to the patient forbearance of your friend. Yet you may boldly act in consequence of knowing the latter to be the truth of the case, by continuing and persisting in such a teasing and tormenting behaviour, as little less than the patience of Job could bear with or endure. In short, my good pupils, if you study well my instructions, and, from these my outlines, finish for yourselves a complete system for the practice of tormenting your friends, I will be bold to pronounce of you, 
what Claudian has already so well expressed to my hands. Talum, progenies, hominum, si, prissa, tuliset, pyrithorum, fugaret, thescu, offensu, orestum, discrete, pylades, odyset, castora, pollux. Inrur, lib i v 107. End of section 8.